Welcome to BioIT World's Trends from the Trenches podcast, your insider's look at the science, technology, and executive trends driving the life sciences. I'm Allison Prophet, editor of BioIT World. Today's episode is hosted by Stan Gloss, founder of BioTeam, a life sciences IT consulting company at the intersection of science, data, and technology. Joining Stan today is Kirsten Fognan, Chief Informatics Officer at the Joint Genome Institute. Together, they discuss biology's messy data sets, what we really want from our DOIs, and the Genome Citation Service. Let's listen in. Well, good afternoon, Kirsten. It's so nice to have you on my podcast today. Uh, thanks for having me, Stan. It's good to see you. Yeah, well, you, you're going to be speaking at BioIT World coming up in May, so... Uh, I don't know whether this is a topic that you're going to be speaking about today, but um, I, I read something in abstract that you had written about a genome citation service that's coming out of JGI, and it sounded really cool and interesting that I think that our listeners would really appreciate learning about. But maybe before we start, maybe if you could tell a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I am the Chief Informatics Officer at the Department of Energy's Joint Genome Institute. I've been at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory for about almost 13 years. And I think for nine or 10 of those, I've been working with the, the JGI. And a few years back, that was when I, I met you. And uh, I've sort of stayed in connectivity with the bioinformatics and IT community. And our goal at the Joint Genome Institute is really to allow for seamless connectivity between our data resources and infrastructure and the broader community. And the, the Genome Citation Service that we're going to talk about today is part of this bigger vision of connecting us into that, that data ecosystem. But your background really didn't begin with bioinformatics at all. No. Yes. I'm I'm an applied mathematician. I got my PhD up at the University of Washington. Before that, I studied math and computer science as an undergraduate. Uh, in 2017, I graduated with an MBA from UC Berkeley. And I've had this kind of winding journey when I was in graduate school, I worked on a project coming up with mathematical models, physical models for lithotripsy or extracorporeal shockwave therapy, which is pretty awesome. And my first foray into mathematical biology, computational biology. And then I went to the National Energy Research Scientific Computing Facility, NERSC. It's a supercomputing center at Berkeley Lab. And there I worked on high-performance computing, basically taking mathematical models for subsurface reactive flow and thinking about how to scale those to, mm. at the time, one of the biggest supercomputers in the country. And I did not find that work as fulfilling as I've found making the transition into working with the JGI, understanding some of the computational and data challenges that come up in bioinformatics that are very different from what you find in applied math or partial differential equations. Everything's just a little bit uh, fuzzier and more difficult, more statistical. 
I've had to embrace the fact that all the answers actually come from a distribution. You don't have a single answer and you have to think about probabilities and uh, it's a lot of fun. There's always something new that I'm learning about biology and about microorganisms. Yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing background, Kirsten. Um, So maybe we can, before we talk about the genome citation service, what was going on at JGI prior to this development? Sure. So for those that aren't familiar with the JGI, it actually started as part of the Human Genome Project. And the JGI was responsible for uh, creating the sequence for a handful of the chromosomes of the human genome. Once that project was finished, JGI had a number of sequencers, uh, significant skills in data generation and in sequencing technology. And so it got transitioned into what the Department of Energy calls a national user facility. And so that means that the the skills that we have for folks who are good at building wet labs and running sequencers and then taking that data and analyzing it can be leveraged by the broader scientific community. So anyone who wants to get something that's DOE mission relevant sequenced at the JGI can write a proposal and send us their data. So this got really exciting as it got cheaper and cheaper to generate sequence data. We were able to scale that production up, support many more scientific projects. And that meant that we had exponential data growth within the JGI. And when you've got a facility that's really excellent at biological and wet lab work and maybe has put less of an emphasis on computing infrastructure to support it, uh, there's a little bit of a disconnect. Mm-hmm. And you have to you have to remedy that. And so what we did maybe 10 years ago, no, almost exactly 10 years ago, was we deployed a, a data management system that actually helped take all of the, you know, exponential growth and data generation and analysis that JGI needed to do and get it organized. So JGI is a pretty big organization. People need to share information between teams and groups. You've got one group generating the data from the sequencers. You've got another group doing the quality control on that data, yet another group doing the assembly, and then subsequent groups doing annotation and analysis, comparative analysis of all of those genomes and building tools. And all those groups need to be able to work together. And so if you've only got, you know, a handful of data sets, it's pretty easy to share those in a Google Doc or spreadsheet. But then you have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and now like billions of data objects that you need to manage. And you can't can't just do that via email anymore um, or by talking to each other. So now we have a centralized system for data management. And that gave us the ability to think about what are we generating? Who's using that data? Uh, is it who are we serving? We make all of these products available to the broader research community once the the embargo period has passed. And one of our goals is to not just see the original data get generated and used by that PI, but to see the impact of the data we generate amplified through reuse of the data. But that's a pretty tricky problem to try and try and understand where and how data are being reused. Right. And what kind of scale are we talking about in terms of size of data that you're dealing with these days? So the JGI's archive is more than 14 petabytes in size now. 
And that's just what we have that sits on tape. We also manage about roughly 10 petabytes of uh, active spinning disk file systems. And that's just to support our operations as well as mm. the restoration of data from, from tape when people need to download it. Wow, that's pretty significant. So what was a tipping point that you've done all this work, you have all this data? What was it that was the tipping point that caused you to start thinking about different solutions? And so how did citation, the citation service, how did it evolve and where did it come from? And what was the problem that you were trying to solve? Well, the Department of Energy a few years ago got uh, excited about assigning digital object identifiers to all data generated by scientists or organizations like the JGI. And if we take a step back and we think about the number of objects, like I mentioned earlier, we have billions of data objects when you get down to thinking about the level of genes and functions within a file. And so what problem are we trying to solve by putting digital object identifiers or DUIs on everything? And that's the question we asked to our funders. And they responded with, a, you know, they have this desire to help scientists cite data use uh, in their publications a desire to understand when data are being reused, and then also to help scientists understand how their data has been used by others. And so their thinking was, okay, if we have these globally unique identifiers assigned to all of the data sets, then people will cite those, it'll be a common reference, and it'll make it easier for us to start answering those, those questions. And we thought about it. We thought about the overhead involved in creating DOIs for everything. We took a look at what was happening in the literature at that point in time. We talked with some of the scientists about how they go about citing data. And what we found is that a DOI isn't necessarily... The, the silver bullet, I guess, to use a cliche that you might think it is just because something has an identifier. If you're using a thousand data sets to generate a publication, you're not going to put all thousand DOIs into the bibliography. You might have something in your supplemental materials. You might be referring to identifiers in a figure. Like the way these things get cited, there's no agreed upon standard that goes across all journals. So that's still challenging. And it's it's really a, a messy data problem. But JGI had been working with a company called Names for Life to issue DOIs for microbes um, and microbial strains. And part of that was to navigate how the nomenclature changes over time, the way we refer to microbes is evolving, the taxonomy changes. And when somebody's referencing a microbe in a paper and they want to future-proof it, if that microbe has a globally unique identifier, then a subsequent reader can click on that 
and it'll resolve to the current name or the current way of referring to that particular microorganism, which is really valuable for this community. We see how much that right. changes. Yeah. And so that was a good use of DOIs. So it's, it's interesting because it kind of, in a way, reminds me of a little bit uh, Google-like, you know, trying to be able to capture uh, the number of reference pages to how many reference there are and trying to establish how important a website is based on the number of links there are to it. So it sounds very Google-like in terms of, am I wrong? I think or, that's our... I think that's the goal, really, to understand if you have a data set that's been created, what makes that data set good? What makes it reusable? What makes it important? What makes it, uh, you know, a, a good investment when we're really thinking about how taxpayer money has been spent, right? Like, we want to understand who out there is doing a really good job, not just designing experiments and asking questions and publishing papers, but also setting up the data associated with that work in such a way that their colleagues can use it. And that's a that's a tricky thing to answer. And part of it stems from, okay, well, this data set was part of 50 publications. Hmm. What What is it about those publications? Did they all use the data set in the same way? Are they all from the same field? Are they publications that, you know, are are open source or behind a paywall? How much does that matter? Mm -hmm. So you're right in thinking about wanting to build this kind of connected graph of information about the data that we're expending a lot of resources to generate. And, you know, there's also the historical component of how do these objects change over time or what they refer to change over time. And since we'd had that DOI work with Names for Life, and we had an open contract with them. One of the things I wanted to do in my role as CIO before assigning DOIs to every single data object JGI generates was I wanted to do an investigation to say, if we have these globally unique identifiers that have been associated with JGI data sets for more than a decade, and we have things like NCBI accessions, or we have, you know, identifiers that have been issued by resources like IMG um, or, you know, gold, some of our local resources. You know, how much are those identifiers being used already to cite data sets? Would DOIs be duplicative? Can we even figure out if for a given set of those identifiers, what the publications are that have used the data associated with those identifiers? This is a big, messy problem. And no. it kind of takes this premise of, okay, we have a globally unique identifier. Do we? Are, does that make it easier to find all of the associated data? And you get into a lot of debates and conversations right now about, well, if we only have the perfect ontology that everyone is using, if only we have the perfect protocol for everyone to cite their data. And I think that is letting kind of perfection be the enemy of, of reality and right. how people work and how people get things done, right? Like, you know, a scientist is out in the field collecting samples, collecting information about those samples, 
to investigate a particular hypothesis. They come back, they do work in the laboratory, they generate digital information based on those physical samples. There's downstream analysis that gets done. And, you know, they do all of this work and then they come up with a result that they want to publish. And it's at that point in time, that moment in time when getting the data into these national repositories with associated metadata becomes a critical task because the journals are demanding it. But this could be months or even potentially years after the collection of the original sample, when it might have been easiest for them to get all of that metadata and information that is needed to kind of meet the needs or the expectations or requirements of an ontology. And so there's a there's a certain amount of, let's try to understand what folks are doing now. Bef- let's try to understand how their work process, uh, what that looks like right now. And then let's think about solutions that are actually feasible and just kind of acknowledge the fact that we're working with humans that have lots of different goals. And it's probably always going to be a messy problem. A DOI or ontology isn't going to like make this any cleaner. We've got also decades upon decades of historic data and information to work with. So it when you talk about things like that, then you have to build a system that's able to deal with that messiness, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. Perfectly, yeah. So, you know, at Bioteam, we've been thinking for years about this concept of micropublication because what's happening to our data is exactly what you described. It, it is sitting there, valuable data goes sitting for many years waiting for publication because nobody wants to release it because they're not going to get attribution. But if we kind of shifted attribution into and be able to go to data producers who do this and say, by the way, you're a five-star data producer. You're like one of the top people in the world at data producing. And, you know, it's you because you do it and release it so quickly, you're getting you know, exponential growth in terms of usage of yours and recognition for being the amazing data producer that you are. I think there's something there that allows us. The other thing I think, Kishan, is that when we thought about what happened in COVID, all of a sudden the walls came tumbling down on this, on data sharing in order to survive through the pandemic. We had to start sharing quickly and all the things that all the obstacles that we thought were there to data sharing came tumbling down and all of a sudden people started working and sharing data and it was an amazing uh sight to see from what wasn't possible to what became very possible overnight because of urgency so i don't know these are just thoughts when i listen to you talk about these things so maybe you could kind of um so where it where is the the citation service these days and how's it being used and who's benefiting from that? Yeah. So I might back up a little bit and okay. say I think one of the other tricky things about what you mentioned is this idea of you know centralized data production versus distributed uh data production. Right. So if you look at large physics experiments, they've got one apparatus that they can use. You're only going to build one large hadron collider. 
and lots of experimentalists are going to use it. And there can be this more, uh, you know, since it's centralized, there can be rules and protocols around what happens with that data. And with sequencing data, you had uh, agreements that were struck back in the day about, yes, we're all going to share this information and share this data. And this is, you know, this will be for the common good. And you had centers that cropped up like the JGI that had the sequencers, the expensive pieces of equipment, and were generating the data. Over the last 10 years, it's gotten much cheaper, much easier for anyone to generate their own sequence data too. So you have to contend even more with this question of what makes high quality data. You know, is it just being able to say something in your publication or is it, you know, publishing quickly, getting the data out, having these data publications associated with it, and then figuring out, you know, is, is it the reuse that makes the data valuable? And so there are a lot of those interesting questions in there that I think we're we're in a holding pattern and we're not able to answer them because we don't have the type of knowledge graph that you would need to start understanding some of the connections and to start being able to say, oh, this is this is not only do we see a citation of the data being reused, right. but we can understand how someone was reusing it. We can see whether or not the citation is in this background literature search component of the paper, or if they've actually taken it and done a new analysis with it. And so I think that's very important future work that the whole community, we're setting ourselves up to be able to do that. And something like the genome citation service, where you can take identifiers, take globally unique identifiers, can take metadata associated with a study or a data set that's been generated. And you can ask the question, where was this used in the literature right. was something that we could only build because of the relationship with names for life that we had, because they had these, they spent 10 years building these services that let journals create these clickable links within their articles to resolve the names of microorganisms. So they had to be able to not only like track the use of all of those clicks and DOIs, but they had infrastructure to be able to scrape all of that literature, build associations with how those DOIs were being used or how the or referenced. And this was a, an analogous problem to, okay, let's instead uh, sort of generalize this beyond DOIs to all of the identifiers that JGI has, and let's see what we can do with that. And um, so we've, we've built a service where... You know, for a JGI proposal, we have a certain number of metadata tags in, that we keep within our data management system. And then we use those to query the genome citation service, find and identify publications right now that are, are limited to the open source literature because those are the, the easiest ones to work with. Right. And then we can pull those publications back and we can associate them with the original proposal and the original PI. So this expands the PI's understanding also of the publications, downstream publications that have cited their work. Um, so that's what we have in place right now. We So Names for Life was shutting down last year. The owner was retiring. And so the Joint Genome Institute and Berkeley Lab 
actually acquired all of the intellectual property and the services and the databases that they had built. And we've taken those in. We are finalizing the intellectual property agreements with uh, one final party. And once we have those in place, we will have these services up and running on JGI's infrastructure and available for public use. One of the things that we still need to do as part of this work is actually go out and, and talk to potential users about the types of interfaces that they'd like to these services and to these resources. Um, but that's on our roadmap for this year. So if somebody out who's listening to this podcast wants to reach out to you, to they find this fascinating, how would they get a hold of you, Kirsten? Well, they can go to JGI's website and find me, but also um, can just send me an email. All of, all of us that work for government organizations have our contact information up on our web pages, but mine is kmfagnan at lbl.gov. So feel free to drop me a line and we'll happily chat with you about this. Well, this is fantastic. Kirsten, thank you so much for sharing this valuable service with us today. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, I'll see you all at BioIT World. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to BioIT World's Trends from the Trenches podcast.